Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo, episode 26, and I am your host, Demetrius Malbro, your chief data protection chef. And today on Data Protection Gumbo, I have the pleasure of speaking with Janik Joshi. And Janik has been with Deloitte for quite some time now. And even though you know we are doing this podcast together, he is not representing uh, the company or the firm. And Janik brings lots of experience to the table, uh, building and managing global products, also leading world-class scientists, engineers, and CIOs. And he is also a three-time entrepreneur with successful, successfully raising and existing uh, companies with tier one venture capitalists. So I would like to welcome uh, Janik to the show. Thank you very much, Dimitri. I um, appreciate the time you're spending with me and um, appreciate the opportunity to uh, share my thoughts with the, the audience. Excellent. So I, I, I thought that it would be really cool to kind of switch it up from just strictly data protection and backup and recovery and kind of branch out a little bit and take a net and just kind of go out there and see what we can find related to healthcare and uh, that side of the market. So uh, let's go ahead and jump in. I have uh, several questions for you today. So just overall, um, how, how do you think healthcare is, is shaping up and how do you think that healthcare is really changing uh, from a data analytics and data management side? So when we think about healthcare, um, most people think about healthcare across the spe- spectrum of healthcare delivery as in hospitals and in independent clinics. But the reality is going forward and where we are seeing the shift from demonstrating the value of healthcare, both to the patient, to the hospitals, as well as to the insurance company, um, there are data requirements and data generated from the, deli- from the manufacturing side of healthcare, which is the life sciences companies, the biotech companies, the medical devices of the world, the delivery side, which is the hospitals and the clinics, the insurance, uh, or rather in this company, the reimbursement side of the business, both representing the government, which is the Medicare and Medicaid, as well as private insurance companies. And ultimately, and as we call in life sciences, the holy grail is the patient journey or patient reported outcomes or patient engagement models, which is essentially indicative of the real value of outcomes associated with the delivery married to that of what the therapies that are actually being uh, manufactured. So the effectiveness is where the healthcare um, data sets uh, generated across the entire spectrum from manufacturing to patient consumption um, is, wh- is what is beginning to be most uh, important uh, across all the different entities. And what this means is that the information flow that comes from pharmaceutical firms as in clinical trials, the information that comes from hospitals as in inpatient systems, outpatient systems, ER visits, radiology visits, lab visits, um, the information that is generated by your insurance company, and the information that's generated by you, the consumer, uh, the patient, all needs to be converged in a way that makes sense from a clinical standpoint, from an engagement standpoint, as well as from a uh, from an outcomes standpoint, as in how effective is the therapy that was prescribed to you, and that information contextually needs to be shared across the right people at the right time for the right purpose. 
So when the question is around what is going on in healthcare and how is healthcare shaping, you could summarize it by indicating that there is a shift from producing widgets, which was indicative of the last several decades of healthcare in this country, to actually demonstrating value associated with a therapy based on outcomes and effective outcomes by virtue of cost, by virtue of um, clinical indicators, and ultimately by virtue of patient satisfaction. So I hope that answers the question which can potentially lead us sure. to a little more uh, in-depth around the technology. Sure, absolutely. That was a, um, a, a very great answer. And, you know, one thing that I am really intrigued by is um, genomic sequencing or sequencing of the genome. I've, I've been following some of the uh, news and articles out there, and it's really, really uh, fascinating what's happening is from a data storage perspective. You know, do, do you have any comments on uh, genomic sequencing and um, some of your experiences with it, per se? Absolutely. Um, I recall my time at Partners Healthcare System in Boston back in the early to mid-2000s where the cost of human genomic sequencing was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it was more representative of the research side of the equation and heavily funded by both commercial as well as federal entities in this country as well as in Europe. So what has happened in the last 10 to 12 years is the cost of actual sequencing, both the genomic side as well as the the clinical context side of the information that marries with the genomic uh, data sets, has become very cheap, which means that currently a full genome sequencing is $1,000 or less, which means it's now a credit card purchase. So the cost is no longer a barrier to producing the data set. However, the, the output of any genomic sequencing data and the values that, being, that are represented therein are not really adopted by the wider clinical community for multiple reasons. Number one, genomic sequencing data is used in very specialized healthcare uh, domains, such as oncology for treatment of cancer protocols. Um, it's also used in certain areas such as cardiology and in very few areas of HIV. But beyond oncology, the wider use of sequencing data has not really used in the treatment side of healthcare. However, it is important to know that as all the healthcare entities converge and as multiple different uh, domains of healthcare deliveries are sharing data amongst each other, that sequencing data has now become important for actual development of therapies by the life sciences companies globally. So com large pharmaceutical companies value that information a lot more because they want to deliver the right medication for the right person with the right outcome, or better known as personalized medicine. So sequencing data from a healthcare delivery perspective, while still evolving from an effectiveness perspective, has pivoted to be a lot more important for the manufacturing side of healthcare. And in fact, majority of the um, healthcare protocols and the healthcare pipelines or study protocols, as pharma companies call it, have some form of genomic data 
engaging their um, principal investigators and their scientists at some point during the evidence life cycle, which means that whether it's a simple over-the-counter medication or whether it's a complex multi-tiered therapy being developed for treatment of late-stage colon cancer, the ability for us to use genomic sequencing data is going to get that much easier. And where I anticipate the use of this information being most effective is ultimately in the hospitals, where, I, where I, I'm hoping that in the next 8 to 10 years, treatment of complex diseases, treatment of multi-tiered uh, therapies are going to be based on how you respond to therapies based on your genetic biomarkers. So the notion of one-size-fits-all, or rather, as I would like to call it, one-size-treats-all, should not exist because that creates safety issues, that creates complications, that creates effectiveness issues, and such. So okay. hope that helps. So I guess you're saying I should uh, go out here and get my uh, genome sequenced. Is that is that what you're saying? <laughs> oh, I should not. <laughs> so genomic sequencing is available both on the retail side as well as it can be ordered from um, the physician. And it, it actually, the question that you asked is one of the biggest de- debates that has been going on for the past three yeah. years. So yes, you can get your genomic sequence done, but I'm not sure today that that sequencing information is any useful than what information your physician already possesses. It's not going yeah. to Im- impact you that much today, but it will and impact you five, six years from now. And I was also reading something about uh, CRISPR and three-parent babies as well. H- have you heard about that? Um, I read a little bit about it, but I don't have enough depth about it to comment intelligently. But yes, yeah. that is going to be very, very important in a, in a couple of years. Yeah, let, let's, let's not touch that one, you know, however it is out there, right? <laughs> it is. It definitely is. Mm-hmm. So do, do today's BI systems talk to each other, uh, I guess, as you pass cohorts of analysis across uh, vendor systems? The BI systems that were created and the net new um, BI tools that are being introduced in the market by either startup companies or established companies such as the Watson Group from IBM, I'd like to indicate that they're they're more or less point solutions, which means that they, they can, they're able to answer one or two very specific questions with ease and efficiency. However, if you look at the purpose of any analysis across any entity, whether it's the delivery side of healthcare, the manufacturing, or the insurance side of healthcare, there is a life cycle, which means your questions lead to establishing a hypothesis or an evidence that needs to that that fuels additional questions that need to be answered. There is never a single question that is the end state uh, that requires an end state answer in healthcare, which means that at different points during the healthcare delivery lifecycle, whether it's the physician or whether it's the scientist in a life sciences company, they are using today multiple different BI tools. And by the way, none of those BI tools talk to each other. So if you're using your traditional SAS and R uh, tools, they don't automatically talk to the click views of the tableaus of the world. And if you're using the click views, the tableaus, the spot fires of the world, they don't talk to specialized analytical tools uh, specific to, say, translation science or 
tools that are given to you by your third-party vendors, such as clinical research organizations or CROs. So I see a a major disconnect between the BI tools right now, which brings an opportunity to the market about how to interoperate between BI's tools today, and not just within a single function, but across the different functions. This is a bigger gap, not just from a productivity standpoint, but also to bring that traceability and auditability across the entire spectrum, which means what information was generated from which data, how did you establish your hypotheses, and most importantly, what were the methods, the measures, the facts, the definitions that you used across the systems to come up with your end-state evidence? And that evidence could be used for treatment of therapies, to make arguments with the FDA for reimbursement, or to establish or demonstrate value to um, private insurance companies for reimbursement. So unless and until we are able to tie those pieces together, it continues to remain a manual effort and a very expensive one at that. Okay, wow, manual effort on that. So uh, also, I guess, what are some of the key data sources that today uh, seem optional, but that I guess we will see really take off within the next three to five years? I would say that we have to look at history of what has been important so far and how what is currently used is shifting or uh, influencing the importance of the data that's going to be representative, say, five or ten years from now. So far, um, your medical insurance data has been widely used by both pharmaceutical companies, medical device companies, and to a large extent even hospital research or um, clinical research organizations for for manufacturing of therapies um, during clinical trials or studies, etc. Over the last five or six years, um, more and more life sciences companies have continued to part or have been exploring partnerships with large health systems. And these health systems essentially um, are able to contribute uh, with full patient consent um, and full disclosure and with full privacy, etc., to these pharmaceutical companies about sharing information from their inpatient systems or outpatient systems, etc. Not just from the context of research, but in context of actual clinical trials for therapy delivery. And the industry over the last couple of years has called this phenomenon real-world evidence, or RWE. And all it means is let's look at information or treatment information of what's actually happening in the clinics and not limit ourselves of creating information with a perfectly defined trial with a perfectly identified patient cohorts. So your, your transaction systems in hospitals plus your medical insurance information is what's most prevalent today. However, what's beginning to take shape as number three and, and, and very quickly, um, my hope is that that information set will be number two is the genomic sequencing data, is the genetic biomarker data. Um, and number three is the medical device data. Currently, there is little to no information coming from consumer medical devices or even inpatient devices that contribute to any clinical trials. They're used in very narrow uh, subsets and very narrow domains. But if you look at information coming from, say, 
um, radiology systems. Um, if you look at information coming from um, medical devices manufactured by, say, Bayer or GE or Siemens or Philips, none of that information is used contextually today, both in treatment as well as in manufacturing. And last but not the least, there is a big debate on whether or not the um, consumer sensor side of the healthcare business is really that valuable or, is it, or does that serve more of a distraction. Um, the debate is still open for a variety of different reasons, mostly because of the specificity and the sensitivity and the accuracy of, of uh, consumer-grade sensors is not as high as what the FDA would call it clinically material. So unless and until you, your everyday device, like your Fitbits of the world, are able to demonstrate high level of accuracy and sensitivity and are almost enforced in a consistent way by your insurance company or a doctor um, and whether or not the patient is compliant with those devices will really dictate if that becomes an additional data source or not. But until then, um, your medical um, insurance information, your inpatient and outpatient systems information, and your medical device information, and the genetic sequencing information are four core domains that will continue to gain traction more and more. Okay, so that was a little discussion of IoT. I guess since you mentioned uh, consumer sensors, uh, definitely to me sounds like uh, Internet of Things or IoT Absolutely. because there are billions of these sensors and devices popping popping Absolutely. online between now and the next, uh, what, five to ten mm -hmm. years or so. That's correct. So let's, let's talk cloud, everyone's favorite topic, right? Cloud, cloud, cloud. So um, how much data do you actually want to store versus have it available on something like a, let's say, a data-as-a-service model? That is an excellent question, and it is, it is also um, not an easy question um, to answer in today's day and age for a variety of different reasons. Everybody thought a few years ago that we will all be in a single cloud environment, that if we set up um, a cloud storage environment in, in Amazon, that that will be the only cloud we will be dealing with. Little, yeah. did, little did the industry realize that cloud is slowly become commodity in terms right. of storage which means that the data that you buy from your commercial data vendor will also be offering data as a service from their cloud. You have a private or a public cloud yourself within the enterprise, and you will have multiple cloud environments for multiple different countries um, if you're a life sciences company. So I'd like to, I'd like to indicate the challenge or the more more of an opportunity in the cloud environment as today's organizations will have to think about dealing with a hybrid cloud ecosystem and i call it an ecosystem because every mm -hmm. cloud is representative of its own web services of their own bi tools that they might support and and their own vendor certifications if you're dealing with say the tipco bpm tool it might not work on Amazon AWS or Teradata. If you're dealing with the Oracle BPM cloud, they come with their own cloud. Um, or if you're dealing with Pegasus, um, that a lot of the CRO organizations may or may not use, they may only be an on-premise install and may not be multi-tenant. 
So suddenly you're faced with this challenge saying, well, if you're tying all the pieces together across the entire product lifecycle of a pharma company, and if you're bringing multiple vendors, BI tools and such together, but everybody exists on different hybrid cloud environments, how does it all work together? Um, and there and there are startup companies, uh, venture-funded startup companies in Silicon Valley, as well as up here in Boston and Cambridge, that are beginning to address the problem. Um, but we have not yet seen a solution in the market that's really a true product. These solutions are more of pilots, betas, and more of services so far. But okay. I'd like the audience to know that that is not an optional uh, situation. It's going to be more and more integral to your business strategy, specifically to your IT strategy going forward. Okay, I appreciate that. Um, so we had to mix a little cloud conversation in here for the listeners. Everyone just loves cloud. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, switching gears a little bit, and um, this may be the final question, uh, maybe one or two more questions for sake of time here. Okay. Um, so switching on to, I guess, uh, machine learning or uh, cognitive computing, because you mentioned Watson earlier, mm-hmm. and it's just really cool, the things that IBM uh, is doing uh, around Watson and teaching Watson, all of these uh, really interesting things. And I, I just remember reading um, maybe six months or a year ago that IBM acquired uh, all of the assets of the uh, Weather Channel as far as their data. <laughs> Correct. And... You know, I said, you know, well, what does IBM really, you know, have with um, acquiring data from the Weather Channel? You know, so it's really interesting. And then I, you know, went on to witness and hear about other acquisitions that IBM made that really didn't make sense to me. So now you have LinkedIn and Microsoft merging together as well. And then uh, a couple days ago, I read that Microsoft purchased um some company or now they have a stake in the marijuana industry where they're going to implement, uh, I guess, these dispensary machines or write the code. It's something related to that. I can't really remember exactly what it was, but companies are now really jumping into all of these different types of industries and merging and using that information to kind of create their own, as you mentioned earlier, ecosystem. You know, everyone's really jumping in now. Um so final question, I guess. Uh, so how critical uh, will the role of machine learning be in big data analysis, uh, specifically in, in life sciences and also healthcare? And, you know, are we really able to change, um, I guess, subjective decision making to being objective? That is a great question. That is, an, that is actually a fantastic question. Um, for multiple reasons, I would say that instead of trying to answer the question as if I have a real answer to it, um, I, I will answer it from two different angles. Um, one sure. indicative of where the, the topic of machine learning um, is still in its infancy in terms of what we know about machine learning or how effective are the algorithms associated with machine learning. Okay. Number one. And when I say that it's in its infancy, it's because we have not yet seen machine learning algorithms translate to everyday decision-making, even with the simplest tasks at hand uh, in healthcare. For example, how do you deal with false positives uh, on a nursing station in an inpatient system in a hospital? Um, how do you deal with, how do you adjust the specificity 
or sensitivity associated with uh, values that are um, generated by your ICU systems attached to um, your body. Um, what if the alert goes on every minute or every five minutes? Is it truly that critical or not critical? Those are the kind of very simple questions that machine learning algorithms can really help address going forward. The second piece, I would say that machine learning is highly dependent on the quality of the information, the frequency, the velocity, and the veracity of the information that the algorithms are being fed. Now, anybody dealing with big data in today's world, especially in healthcare, understands that the velocity, veracity, frequency, throughput, etc., anything associated with the, the quality of the information is not consistent. In fact, right. it's almost impossible to maintain that lineage and longitudinality associated with a single patient. There are always breakpoints going from vendor A to vendor B, let alone be that information even being consistently reproduced with the same value sets going forward. So, it, so machine learning breaks every time there are gaps in information sets from a lineage perspective, longitudinality perspective, consistency perspective, depth, etc. So, un- so we need to fix the basis before we can talk about machine learning. And the last piece is machine learning where I have seen in healthcare really take off in healthcare, or rather beginning to create true and real value for the patients, is actually in the compliance and adherence side of the equation, which means that what are some of the key basic points that I can look at um, when I look at your cell phone data to make recommendations that you haven't had your medication or that you need to go and take a pill going forward um, or the or, or simple things that make recommendations to schedule appointments with your doctor that you haven't made over the last year or two years. So again, there are low value uh, issues today but the learnings from these issues will really dictate how machine learning as a science, as a topic, really matures going forward. Um, I see machine learning, finally, um, in context with uh, your medical devices, of your medical devices such as blood glucose monitors or continuous glucose monitors or your, uh, um, uh, or your cardiac um, holsters, etc., being a lot more intelligent in terms of the kind of alerting, notification, and management of the information that it's generating compared to the manual side, uh, or rather heavily manually dependent um, management of alerting and notification across these devices, which means that you don't have to constantly look at these devices to kind of adjust your dosing or your strength or the frequency of medication input, etc., the machine learning algorithms can potentially influence that, if not make the actual decision around it. Fantastic. Yeah, so I I was able to find that um, Microsoft article where, yeah, this is exactly what it's doing. So they are breaking the corporate taboo on pot this week by announcing a partnership to begin offering software that tracks marijuana plants from seed to sale. Interesting, huh? Okay, absolutely. Yeah, that is, that is that is really interesting. And you know, I will. I, I'd like to give the audience one last example uh, of something um, that I've been thinking about personally. Okay, is how do you understand 
the uh, medication protocols or the medication of a patient uh, for those meds that have not been prescribed by the doctor or the counter. For example, if you pick up Advil from from CVS or Walgreens, okay, your physician has no idea that you're taking Advil or vitamins or any other prescri- uh, non-prescription drug available over the counter. Right. But there is one entity who actually knows that, <laughs> which is hmm. which is your credit card company. They know the SKU number, they know the barcode, they know the transaction ID, they know the store ID, and they know the product ID. So, city as, as the Citigroup, Visa, American Express are slowly getting into the business of healthcare, and, and big been, data and big data. Yeah, and they are actually partnering with both hospitals as well as life sciences companies to give them information about buying patterns across certain cohorts of patients, which means patients who have been identified for for diabetes or for Mm. coronary artery disease. What kind of over-the-counter medications are they purchasing um, within their store or even outside the store? So are you saying we need to pay cash for these things now? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yes, if you pay cash, you are going to what I call as uh, you know under the radar. <laughs> so I, yeah, so yeah, that's it's really interesting. So you know, every company now, you know, is really you know making use of uh, collecting you know all different types of data points and collecting them on you know or in some type of repository or some type of database, and then they are you know analyzing that information so that they can make more. Um, you know, strategic decisions and, you know, targeted decisions as far as, you know, which customers, you know, are doing what. And, you know, let's say someone's pregnant, uh, a woman is pregnant and she, you know, goes into Target and she purchases, you know, some, a crib and some sheets and, you know, baby items, right? So then they can take that information and say, okay, she's pregnant. So let's send her a coupon for formula, you know, in one month. You know, so it's just really it's really interesting the the world we live in now. And I just uh, completed a book called The uh, Industries of the Future by a guy named Alec Ross. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but it is a great read. And um, I, you know, and even trying to have him on a podcast episode as well. So it's it's a great book that's talking about the uh, latest and greatest technologies that will be you know displacing uh, lots of workers because. Robots and um, AI is real and it's actually, you know, displacing workers today and it's only going to increase over the next uh, several years. So it is a real thing that's happening. So, Absolutely. so great. Absolutely. Fantastic. This has been this has been a pleasure and a very eye opening of the kind of questions that you're asking. And I hope the audience um, learns and engages um for the next step. Great. So I, I really appreciate you uh, appearing on Data Protection Gumbo. It, it's been a pleasure to have you on. You know, I've learned a lot, and I am sure that the listeners will also learn as well um, some great information from a healthcare and life, life sciences, big data, you know, perspective as well. So, Janet, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to Data Protection Gumbo, and you can check us out at dataprotectiongumbo.com, iTunes, or just Google us. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at dmalbro, 
and you can connect with me on LinkedIn. And also, I am proud to announce that we have now reached over 10,000 hits a month on the website. So thanks to all of the listeners, fans, and the feedback that you have been providing me, which has helped me improve the show tremendously. Thanks again, and see you next time. Have a great week.